You're listening to Redemption City Church. For more information, check us out at redemptioncitychurch.com. So this is week three of our wildfire series, our series through the book of Acts. Uh, if you missed the first two weeks, you can catch up online. We just, uh, we just are trying to move through this very quickly, uh, but it feels quite unsuccessfully as this is week three, and uh, we're still in the first two chapters of Acts. It's supposed to be an eight or nine week series. At this rate, it's going to be an eight or nine year series, but anyway, we're going to have to try and find a way to catch up. So here we go. Last week we spoke quite a bit around these uh, five verses, and we want to pick up on that again this morning. So it's Luke chapter 2, from verse 42 to 47. Father, we thank you as we approach your word, that you lead us and guide us, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to see what it is that you desire us to see in your word this morning, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 2, 42 says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. A sense of awe came over everyone, and the apostles performed many wonders and signs. All the believers were together, had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They shared with anyone who was in need. With one accord, they continued to meet, some translations say with one heart, with one accord, they continued to meet together daily in the temple courts and to break bread from house to house sharing their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we took a little bit of time around Acts 42, uh, Acts 2.42, and uh, just this little phrase, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we came to understand last week that that didn't mean they devoted themselves to the words that the apostles were saying, like the apostles could say anything and they devoted themselves to that. Rather, it meant they devoted themselves to the Scriptures as was being taught by the apostles. And that puts a whole different spin on that thing, right? Not devoted to the words of a man. That's how cults get started. Yeah, not devoted to the words of a man, but devoted to the Scriptures as was being taught by the apostles. Are you doing okay? And then we, we tied it back into this Scripture, Acts 17, verse 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul had said was true. And I want to tell you, friends, that's a responsibility on every single one of us, that we are to go home and examine the Scriptures to ensure that what is coming from this pulpit is the Word of God. Are you doing okay? That's a responsibility on every single one of us. That's what it says. And the Bible says they were more blessed because they did it. They were of more noble character because they went home and opened the Scriptures every day. And as we've gone to these two meetings, I literally preached for 22 minutes. That's the timer that I set on my watch. Don't always get it right, but that's the goal. And uh, the challenge with that is like we, we're trying to open up some truth, and we're going to go 22 minutes, and you're going to go, okay, that's it. That's what God has to say on that truth. Never. And I'm telling you now, that's part of that Scripture. If we really did take whatever is preached from this pulpit as homework, well, that's a bit of a stretch. I quit school when I was 14, and even when I was at school, I never did homework. So 
But, but, but do you understand the concept? If we took what was preached and went home and go, okay, I'm going to use that as like the bones for a Bible study, and I'm going to see where all of that goes, and, and all the rest of the stuff that God wants to unpack around that, I'm telling you now, the Bible would say we are more blessed. We are of more noble character because we are soaking ourselves in the Scripture. I've said on many occasions, pastors tell me God wants to go back to the book of Acts. I'm convinced God wants to take us beyond the book of Acts. But for us to go beyond the book of Acts, we are going to have to go through the book of Acts. And if we go through the book of Acts, we're going to have to start to treat the Scriptures with the same reverence and awe that the early church did. We're going to have to understand the gospel the way the early church did. And for that to happen, we're going to have to read the Scriptures with a redemptive lens. So much of the preaching of the early church reached back into the Old Testament to bring out the redemptive story of Scripture. And that's what we're going to try and look at today. In, in, in our day where there's a lot of moralistic preaching, and, and no doubt, no doubt there, when, when, when we give our lives to the Lord, when we commit our lives to Christ, He will lead us into a different set of morality. I told you that last week. When I got saved, my buddies would tell me, ah, you just got brainwashed. And I would say, good, my brain was filthy. It needed a good scrub right? And so, but it's not about that. It's about Jesus over here. And as Jesus, as we give ourselves to Jesus, we embrace that thing. And it's a flipping of sometimes of what is preached today. And we can see that time and time and time again through Scripture, that it's first Jesus, and then how we behave starts to change. Are you doing okay? In an age of moralistic preaching about what we must do, I want to tell you the gospel, the authentic gospel, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, gospel needs to be preached again and again and again. Are you doing okay? Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I read such an interesting article this week, and it was about confirmation bias. That's so basically what they were saying is that all of these major websites, social media, but then also Amazon, Netflix, all of those things, they work on a confirmation bias, right? They work on the fact that we all have a confirmation bias. So it works like this. If you are liberally minded and you click on a couple of liberal posts, you see more liberal posts. The algorithm does that, right? And so it's confirmation bias. So everything you are seeing now is confirming the bias that you already had. If you're conservative, same thing. You click on a few conservative posts, and suddenly you start to see more conservative posts. And so you see stuff that is confirming the bias that you already had. So truthfully, that's a problem, right? Because actually it just confirms our bias, and so then we end up with less information, not more information. So much for the great information age. The point of this thing is that they are controlling the information we see. Are you doing okay? So my neighbor who lives right next door to me, I've spoken about him often, Joe, firefighter, best neighbor in the world, I'm telling you now. My front page of Amazon looks completely different to his front page of Amazon. We assume it's all the same thing, right? This is the front page of Amazon. No, algorithms at play. All the stuff that you look at, all the stuff that you, that you um, like. Uh, listen, I have to work hard not to be a conspiracy theorist. I'm just telling you now. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm, I'm, I'm working hard right now not to be a conspiracy theorist, I'm telling you now. But, but, we've, but we've got to understand that, right? There's a confirmation bias. And, and all of these guys work on that confirmation bias. They set their algorithms for that. And, and 
And I've blamed certain people for political schisms and, and stuff that we see in our nation. And it's like, wait a minute, actually, it's not even them. It's what's going on online that is all about this confirmation bias. You will see more of what you think to be true anyway. You doing all right? So I'm going to suggest to you that the Scripture also has a confirmation bias. And that's the confirmation bias that we need to lean into. Are you doing okay? So here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. She absolutely did not like that illustration about confirmation bias. She's like, I just want to see what I want to see. I just want to play with my dolls and just be happy and don't tell me about all this other stuff. Uh, listen, I feel exactly the same way sometimes. Okay, here we go. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. He has the bias. Um, when we read Scripture, hopefully I'm going to open it up for you a little bit as we go forward here. But as we read Scripture, I'm convinced of this, that the confirmation bias of Scripture is God's redemptive purpose. That's the confirmation bias of Scripture. That's the bias of Scripture. The whole of Scripture, all of Scripture, from Old Testament to New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, is all about the redemptive purposes of God. And we'll see how that opens up in a little minute. Okay? So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him. And he committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are reconciled to reconcile. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful scripture, what a powerful scripture shows the redemptive purposes of God and shows us how we are reconciled to be reconcilers. You doing all right? Exodus chapter 2, God hears the cry of the Israelites, and He comes down, and He's going to redeem them, and He's going to bring, bring them out of, out of Egypt. And so let's go to Exodus chapter 6 real quick, and we're going to see some stuff. Exodus chapter 6. So here we go. We're just going to read 6 and 7. Exodus chapter 6. Um... Yeah, from verse 6, it says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. What incredible promises we see in, that, in those little, two little verses, right? I will bring you out 
I will set you free. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own. I will be your God. Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. So can you see what's happening here? It's like this moralistic gospel, this moralistic preaching of the gospel is this. Okay, let me give you the law. And if you can obey the law, I will bring you out. And Scripture flips it in completely and says, I will bring you out. I will redeem you. I will do all of these things. I will, I will, I will. And as a flow of those things, as an outflow of those workings, our lives align more and more with Christ. Does that make sense? And Jesus says that himself, right? He says, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, starts back there, this redemptive heart, this thing of if you're in love with Jesus, it will change the outflow of your way of life. You're doing okay. If you love me, you'll obey me. Not obey me and I'll love you. We need some fresh preaching around this stuff, I promise you, man. What amazing promises. I'll bring you out of your circumstances. I'll bring you out of Egypt. I will set you free. Sometimes we can come out, but we drag what was there with us, right? I always give Sandy a hard time because I like to sit by the fire. I like to cook meat on a fire. And it's like we're living in America now. We've got electricity. Like, I get it. You can take the boy out of Africa, but it's a much bigger fight to get Africa out of the boy. I'm just, I'm telling you now. Right? That's a much bigger fight. I'll bring you out and I'll set you free. He says, I will redeem you. The Redeemer in the Old Testament, in, in, in that language, the Redeemer was a close family relative. This is not some business transaction. Jesus, our, C and our CEO, with all his abundance, paid for us to be free. No, it speaks of this close family relationship that I will redeem you. I will pay the price because I want you to be in relationship with me, not simply a possession of mine. Jesus is doing some old school gospel preaching here this morning. I'll redeem you. Mostly a next of kin who had the right under Old Testament law to redeem a relative who had fallen into slavery. And he says, I'll take you as my own. That's covenantal language. That's kind of language that we speak at a wedding ceremony. I will take you as my own. Do you take this woman to be your Lord? Yes, I do. I take you as my own. Covenantal language. And then he says, I will be your God. Speaks of a close, intimate relationship with a loving God for all eternity. And then, as I said, then we get Exodus 20. What God does not say is this, walk in my ways, and if you can walk in my ways, I'll bring you out. It's the opposite way around. Walk in my ways, I'll bring you out. The great storyline of the Bible is God redeeming his people through Jesus. The Bible is 66 books written over thousands of years by a single author, the Holy Spirit. The Bible is 66 books written over thousands of years by a single author. The Holy Spirit has a single storyline. God redeeming his people. In the Bible, 66 books written over thousands of years by a single author with a single storyline and a single main character, Jesus. You doing okay? There's so many examples in this, in the New Testament, how they always reached back into the Old Testament to show people. And so here we go. Here's the story of redemption through the Bible. The people of God created in his image for perfect, unhindered fellowship with Him. But sin enters the world. And that perfect relationship between God and His creation is broken. But God redeems them out of Egypt. That's what we've looked at. God redeems them out of Egypt and gives them the law. But they break the law. 
So he gives them sacrificial um, ceremonial law. He gives them these sacrifices to be offered. But the priests corrupt the sacrifice and offer it in the wrong way. So God gives them judges, but the judges lose their way. And the Bible says everybody did as he saw fit in his own eyes. So God sends them prophets, but they kill the prophets. God gives them kings, and the kings are corrupted. 66 books over thousands of years. Maybe we started to lean into this thing, right? Western thought wants it to all line up, A, B, C, D. We want, we want it all to line up. We want information. But this Bible, and there's a lot of information in the Bible, this Bible was never about information. It was about transformation. And we can have all the information in the world and not be transformed. That's not the point of Scripture. The point of Scripture is transformed, changed lives. And so our, our Western thought wants to go A, B, C, D. Just give me the list, Lord. And Jesus just doesn't work like that. Show us the kingdom, Lord. Okay, let me tell you about a father who had two sons. Wait, what? Just, tell, just show me the kingdom. Just tell me about the kingdom. No, let me just tell you a parable. And so much of Jesus was stories, and so much of the Old Testament is stories. The kingdom of God is like a man who had to, but I don't want to know what it's like. I want to know what it is. The kingdom of God is like a man who had two sons. Told them both to go work in the vineyard. One said he wouldn't go and did. One said he would go and didn't. I got confused there. <laughs> and then he goes, which one did the will of the father? Now that's brilliant. And, then you, and you can see this thread of the story. Right? Let me, t- let me tell you about this guy that had 99 sheep and one ran off. Let me tell you about the lost coin. Let me tell you about the lost son. All these stories just all weave together and weave together. And so even Jesus is tapping into that thing. And we want the information and there's the storyline. You doing okay? Here's the story. Over thousands of years, God gave them the law and they broke the law. He gave them sacrifices, they corrupted the sacrifices. He gave them priests, the priests went astray. He gave them judges, the judges went astray. He gave them kings, kings behaved selfishly and did everything for themselves. He gave them prophets and the prophets were corrupted. Here's the storyline, we need a better law keeper. We need a better sacrifice. We need a better priest, a better judge, a better king and a better prophet. And here comes Jesus. Isn't that amazing? King David, this incredible, this incredible, amazing king, takes Israel to its highest place in history. And yet that chapter that makes him an adulterer and a murderer is in the Bible. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it incredible, this, this kind of theme through the Bible, that the Bible chucks mud on almost every character except one? Jesus. And that's the story of redemption. We need a better law keeper. The Bible says of Jesus that he kept the law of his father perfectly. We need a better judge. We need a gracious judge. And here comes Jesus. And so as we open this Bible up with redemptive lenses and we see the redemptive story right across it, what an incredible story. What a magnificent story. Hollywood could not write this. It's too magnificent. It's too broad. It's too big. It's too blowing of the mind and the imagination. Just give me the information. No, no, let me tell you a story. Here comes Jesus who kept the law of his father perfectly. 
who gave himself up as a one-time perfect sacrifice, who becomes a gracious judge and our perfect prophet, priest, and king. And then John opens with this, the Word became flesh. This Word became flesh. The whole Word became flesh. The whole redemptive story, the whole redemptive plan of God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we saw His glory because He came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Mama, mama, mama. Isn't that absolutely incredible? That's the gospel that we've received, or is it? Have we received some other gospel that says, yes, grace plus, faith plus, Jesus plus? Because that's not the gospel of this word. That's a dangerous message, because yeah, yeah, preacher told me I can go do what I like. No, that's not what I said. Take that up. That's between you and the Lord. But this word became flesh. The whole redemptive plan of God became flesh in Jesus and dwelt amongst us. And we saw his glory. What an incredible, incredible gospel. When we grip that and we can see the scriptures through this redemptive lens, as the early church did, man, we get a different view of God. Man, we get a different view of the Bible. Ah, the Bible just feels like a chore. Ah, that didn't sound like a chore. That sounded like I want to spend hours and hours and hours in the Scripture because I want to see that. I want those redemptive lenses, and I want to see that redemptive story on every page. Jesus, not the content of every Scripture, but the context of every Scripture. When we get the redemptive lens, we can just read it and go, wow, this corrupt judge is showing us what a bad judge is so that when this perfect judge arrives, we're going to recognize him for what he is. This priest that did this, we're going to have a high priest that is perfect. This sacrifice that they corrupted, man, there's a one-time perfect sacrifice coming. What an incredible gospel, friends. When we get that gospel, doesn't that sound like something you want to talk about to your friends? That's it. We are reconciled to reconciled when we have those redemptive lenses. Let's stand together. Let's just close our eyes there quick, friends, just for a moment. I don't know all of you in this room and actually even if I do salvation is a very personal thing it's a, it's a thing between you and God I don't think we can ever judge who's saved, who isn't who has received the gospel I want to ask you this morning friends you can't preach a message like that without giving people an opportunity to respond to that gospel to say wow yes I want my story to line up with the redemptive story of God and I get it I don't have to do anything for it can't preach that message that says if you clean your life up good enough, God will love you. What an absolute horror story. What absolute error. God loves you. And he gave up his life for you as you are. I tell the story time and time again. There was not one single redeemable quality about me. There was not one. I wasn't loving. I wasn't kind. I wasn't friendly. I wasn't gentle. I wasn't dumb. There was not one single redeemable quality about me. And in that place, God poured out His love and His mercy and His grace on me. I want to ask you, friends, if you're here this morning and you say, man, I want my story to line up with the redemptive story of God. I'd love to pray for you. Ask Jesus to make Himself real to you by the Holy Spirit. 
That's you young this morning. Won't you just slip up your hand? Just put up your hand. I'd love to pray for you right where you stand. This incredible Jesus. This incredible redemptive story. You don't have to do anything. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What an absolutely incredible, important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What a critically important question. But also in the same instance, what an incredibly, critically wrong question. Because there absolutely is nothing I can do to inherit eternal life. It's all done by Jesus on my behalf. Anybody? Just slip your hand up. We'll pray for you. Let me say this, friends, while while we're in this place. If you received a different gospel, if you received a gospel that says, yes, Jesus, but, yes, grace, but, I want to lift that off you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we want to say it is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. Grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. And I lift every other performance, every other I have to, I have to, I need to, I lift that off your people now, Father, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And I ask us over these next weeks and months, Lord, that you would adjust us and bring the true gospel to bear in our hearts, Lord that we would truly understand how reconciled we are. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We bless your sons and your daughters this morning, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Well done, folks. So we've got uh, bread and juice set out. If you do want to break bread, it's there for you. Make your way across if you want to. If not, there's coffee. Hang out and chat for a few minutes. We love you. God bless. See you next Sunday.